0: Hey everybody, it's Will here. Welcome back to another episode of the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Today we have a very special guest, my buddy Steve from Sats Capital. Steve is somebody I met through Telegram. We've gotten relatively close. Uh, also, he's he's on Twitter, but we got to know each other through Telegram and through some different uh, trading groups. So Steve, I'm really happy to finally have you on the show and uh, I'm sure the audience is going to get a lot out of what you have to say today. Thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: I think we can first start with, maybe for anybody who doesn't know, kind of who are you uh, and how did you get
1: into the space? What do you do now? Yeah, so um, I probably didn't have the the typical start, I guess, a lot of people you, you talk with now. Uh, I don't really have like a traditional uh, Wall Street background or, or anything like that. Um, I actually started off, well, I, I'm an engineer, I guess, by trade. That's where I went, went to school for. But I've been into crypto. Uh, for a long time now. since it started in 2013, uh, April two, 2013. Um, so my dad was kind of a gold bug. So he kind of got me into some investing late 2012. And then I started kind of uh, researching more and more. And then I ended up hearing about Bitcoin from Max Kaiser because I used to watch RT a little bit back then. And then, so I got into Bitcoin right as this uh, Cyprus stuff was gone. I'm not sure if you're, you've heard of that, but basically, like they they had bail-ins um, in Cyprus where they they took money from people's accounts and essentially gave them a haircut. So uh, you know that was kind of the the times when I started getting in there. Um, and then I basically put a small amount in to be to begin with, and then I was working over in Taiwan for a while in mid 2013. And I started to just research more and more and I, I kind of got the use case more more of what was going on with with Bitcoin. Um so and then I, I basically started stacking back then and then I wrote it all the way up to the bubble in late 2013 and then I wrote it all the way back down because I knew nothing about trading and I was like, all right, I need to start uh understanding how to how this stuff works, you know, why is the chart moving the way it does? So I started getting interested in trading like right after that in 2014. So
0: what was it like in the early days with, you know, I'm guessing like the community of traders was like super small, super niche. So kind of like talk to us about what was that like back
1: then? Was there even like a crypto Twitter or? Yeah. So I, I, I kind of started, um, I had a Twitter account. I, I made a different one, uh, cause I found some people that were talking about crypto, you know, how you can just use the search bar on Twitter. I just basically was searching Bitcoin, uh, see what popped up. And then there were some people that were trading back then. Um, Probably the only people you might recognize now were Kobe, Crypto Cobain, and then uh, Jeebus was around back then, and then some other guys. But uh, yeah, like I just kind of followed those guys and, and tried to learn some things, and then it, really I just started. Uh, Chris Dillon was another guy that that I kind of learned from back then. Uh, he's still around, um, but yeah, just just like going through charts and trying to figure out. You know, I, I feel like I, I was the same as everybody else, where I start with uh, <laughs> you know all the MACD and, you know, all those things, which I still use a little bit, but, you know, I, I've just enhanced my trading probably, you know, 10x since then. Um, but, you know, everybody has to kind of go through through their start and see what works and doesn't work. So that was kind of a little bit of my process. Um, I started getting more serious about trading, I guess, where I was tracking all my trades in, in 2014. I started trading on Bitfinex. Uh, and then, you know, because you could do margin trading back then and I mean, this is probably when price was 200 to 400 range or so. So I started started getting interested back then. Um, and then, yeah, so kind of fast forward uh, a little bit. I continue to be real interested in, in crypto and stuff. And um, yeah, I had a little scare with the Bitfinex hack in, in, in 2016, uh, but luckily I got, Pretty good chunk of my my stack back, and I it wasn't the only exchange I used. But then I started getting more serious about you know keeping stuff offline and you know hard wallets and whatnot.
0: Were you expecting the uh, hackers to be the the people that they turned out to be this year? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that whole thing was pretty wild. I mean, you know. With crypto like there's never a boring day ever I mean every day is just something insane that happens and so yeah <laughs> you look at that one girl's Instagram and it's just like Whoa, what is going on I mean who knows I think the guy might have been the brains but he really even knows I mean and yeah that, that whole thing was kind of wild back then um but you know I, I was able to survive that which was good I mean and, and that's really a, a lot of it is is in crypto is just surviving I mean if you survive and Um, you know, you don't, you avoided the exchange hacks. I mean, you have to remember like back then there wasn't anywhere near the level of sophistication of security that these exchanges have now. Um, I mean, there was, I feel like there was almost a major hack like every other week or not every other week, but every other month. Um, and so if you could avoid those before they started making hardware wallets, like that was a, a really big deal. Um, so it truly was just survival. And then obviously we had the big run in 2017, which was fun and, you know, alts and everything. And then uh, I was still working back then though. I wasn't doing full-time trading, so I was, I was, but I decided after the run in 2017, um, I had enough saved up and everything. And I was, I was good enough trader where I was gonna go full-time. So I started going full-time. I quit my job, my engineering job in August of 2018. Um, and it was kind of nice cause that was in the bear market. So it's not like I was, you know, one of those people that quit <laughs> at the top, um, you know, and, and thinking that they were a genius. Like I knew i had been through the cycles. I knew what was going on and I'd kind of like, you know, wanted to make the leap and then kind of fast forward from there. Um, you know, I became pretty good friends with a couple guys, you know, just in telegram groups or whatever. And then one of the guys reached out to me and said, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a hedge fund. Like I want you to, uh, meet with me and my buddy, and potentially be a, like a lead trader for us. So I met with them late 2019, and then uh, hit off with them. And so then I yeah then started working for Satscap as a trader. One of the partners left l- end of 2020, um, and so I came in and started. And now I'm a partner there with uh, with Trey. So.
0: One thing you touched on, which I kind of want to dive into a little bit deeper is the fact that you've been in the market so long that you kind of knew what was going on in, in 2017 when, you know, we, well, not we, because I wasn't around back then, but when Bitcoin was kind of reaching that, you know, euphoric stage towards the latter half yeah. of 2017, can we just walk through for listeners, because I'm sure there's a fair amount listening that maybe got into Bitcoin, and just crypto overall in the last year or so. Can you mm-hmm. kind of talk through the, the psychology that you've you've learned to recognize through both the bull and bear markets? Because, um, you know, I personally got into the space in, in late 2020. So I personally haven't experienced, you know, a, a deep 80 yeah. percent correction. So kind of walk through for, for myself as well as the listeners, um, you know, how to kind of navigate those emotions and those broader kind of swings. And, and what is it like down there
1: in the depths of, of the bear market? Well, it's not a whole lot of fun. I' um, will <laughs> tell you that but but at the same time um, you know they're a lot easier now because you know now I'm crypto isn't going anywhere. I mean back then when I first started investing, I truly thought it was binary. I thought like either Bitcoin was going to something crazy like a million dollars or it was going to zero. like there was there was only two options for me kind of and so that's like why I stuck on hold on to, the, to a lot of those coins from back then because, you know, I was just, uh, I was just kind of a believer, but also I knew that the possibilities of, of losing it too. Um, but so the, the bull markets, it, it was pretty easy to um, identify the euphoria in late 2017. And, you know, I was, I was pretty into charting then as well. So I, I kind of realized that uh, essentially like a way to identify a parabola. So on the weekly chart, you basically have various accelerations, so you, you can draw a, uh, a line and then basically like you, you can check out the angle of that line and then it, you know you, you do it again. And I think there was four or five different accelerations and then basically when the last one breaks, that's when you know like the bubble's done. Um, so I was pretty bullish like all the way up into 2017 and then basically after that drop from 20K to 10K um, and the subsequent bounce, I turned pretty bearish. Um, I ended up selling like a pretty decent amount of my stack around, uh, I think, 17k on the on the dead cat there, just because I had seen this before. Like, luckily, I was, I, you know, I'd been through two bubbles, so the two, early 2013 and then the late 2013 bubble where I'd seen these uh, things play out, and you know, I, I'd used OTE, so I'm not sure if how familiar you are with that, like the Fibonacci's. Um, So Fibonacci lines, like basically between the 61 and 78 fib is a normally a a really good retracement, um, area, especially if you have a parabola that breaks or, so I was kind of eyeing that area and that's how I kind of knew, like, if we can't get above this, like this is probably done. Um, and then I was able to kind of write it down and I bought back between 3k and 8k, I believe. So Steve, what are some of like the
0: craziest moments in the time that you've been in the market? I'm sure you know, COVID was one of them. You talked about the X hack. Talk about some of those big moments. And was there ever a time where you thought maybe this
1: thing was actually going to go to zero? Gox, Mount Gox was definitely like a, <laughs> pretty shady. I, I remember Ryan Sulkis at the time was kind of the guy that broke that news. Um, Too idiot is his Twitter handle. Um, and that whole thing was insane. Like just how they didn't have any of the Bitcoin that they said they had. And then, I mean, at this point, like, you know, governments, we know, could have killed, could have killed Bitcoin if they wanted to probably, or, you know, a pretty severely dampened it. They just didn't care because it was too little. But yeah, no one knew after that point, if it would catch on, like if people would trust it again, it, it, t- it took a long bear, a lot of sideways, you know, back in 2015. Uh, yeah, the Phoenix hack was was pretty, pretty crazy. Um, didn't price dropped on like
0: 80% or something after that?
1: 90%? Yeah, so... 2013, after the the, I think the peak was 1,200, uh, went down to 160, I believe, and hit that twice, and then also in 2017 it went from 2,000 to three or 20,000 to 3,000, roughly. Yeah, so both those were like 85% corrections. Um, I was pretty confident in 2017 that it would be fine and you know it would come back because there was just so much more investment. I was pouring in and like Wall Street started getting kind of involved. Like you started getting these exchanges, you know, like bigger players. And so I, I think I knew at that point, like I wasn't really too worried about it. It was just basically like managing risk throughout the bear. And like I said, surviving it, you know, and then knowing where this could potentially go in the next five, 10, 20 years. So how
0: do you, how do you navigate the bottom? Like, you know, I'm, I'm not assuming you or, or many people, you know, called the absolute Pico bottom, but at what point do you start to say, okay, this thing's probably starting to turn around. It's probably starting to find some footing. The certain um, metrics are just kind of sentiment stuff, or like what do you look for? So, yeah, it?
1: like you, I mean, really, like metrics weren't even a big deal, um, or like a thing until really like the last couple of years. Um, so even like the 2018 bear market, the bottom 3k, I would mostly just use ta on uh, technical analysis and really like higher highs and higher lows. Like throughout 2018, they basically there was like that huge descending triangle. I just had, you know, it was similar lows, but it was like lower highs every time. And, you know, and, and when that happened, eventually, like the bottom broke out, people just panicked. And then uh, you got your bottom from six, went down to 6K to 3K. But then we had like higher highs starting to build in that range all the way up until April. And then you kind of had that that crazy candle from, uh, it was over 3K to, or sorry, 4K to 5,500. Um, and then everybody thought, because 6K had been tested so many times that that wasn't wouldn't be able to break quickly. And people started shorting, and then people were just complete disbelief. And that's when you got the run from 3K to 14k in a matter of months, you know.
0: It's pretty much shorting paired with the, the plus token Ponzi, right?
1: Uh yeah, that, that played a role as well. Um, yeah, but funny was pretty negative all throughout then. Um, so you could tell like people were shorting, and then yeah, the the plus. Token, like we found out that kind of that, that later, um, after like at maybe a price was at 10k or something, and then we we figured out they had like 20, 200 to 300,000 BTC that needed to be unwound and at the time, like the the mining issuance, uh, I think there was like 1800 a day. I mean, so it, it was quite a bit, even more than than mining issuance, you know, that needed to be sold off, and in Hiobi was kind of selling it off the, the Chinese government, I think. So that that kind of helped, uh, chop. Chop price around in 2000, uh, throughout 2019. Um, and so. I, so kind of like on a pivot, of, we talked about like psychology
0: in a broader sense, but yeah. can we talk about just psychology of, of trading in general? What are some of the, you know, biggest challenges you face throughout your career? And like, how can people listening that maybe are new to trading improve on psychology and in, in general when they're, when they're, you know, trading?
1: Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing is just like, actually like I read, I read trading in the zone. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that book, but it's, a it's a really good book to, to help manage, um, kind of your emotions. And, and basically what I've found over the time is basically do the opposite of whatever you're feeling. Like if you're really fearful, um, are, if you buy, like it's going to turn out fine. And if you're really, really forward for feeling really greedy, then chances are like, you, you know, if you take some off, like you'll, that's might be a good time. So the crazy thing about markets is really like they're, they take prey on your human emotions. Like say, say if you're out in the wild and you know, you saw like a pack of wolves or something, well, your fight or flight or f- response, your fear response is going to help you stay alive. Right. Or, you know, are, in that instance, are you going to run? So, but you know, it's kind of the same emotions pop up. Like you see the uh, huge, red line on the chart, you know, or a a big dump. And then you, you get scared. You get really fearful. Like what if this is the end, you know? And so what that's doing is like, it's telling you to sell really, you know, out of fear, but those are the times you need to manage your emotions and really take hold of it and learn, learn to understand what emotions you're having and then really like almost trade against them. So I, I've been doing this so long. I don't really get too emotional. I'm pretty flat lined. Um, and I think that's just kind of like who I am as a person too. Like I'm pretty chill. Uh, I don't really get too high or too low, but so that helps me. Um, but yeah, I, I know some people are really struggle with emotions and when it comes to trading and whatever what I would say to them is just kind of do the opposite of whatever you're feeling, you know, and, and definitely be cognizant of what you are feeling and, and that could help you.
0: That makes a lot of sense. i kind of want to pivot to like your actual, um, you know, Individual like trading style. Can we first talk yeah. about like, you know, kind of a high level of the fund? Uh, how's it structured, and like, kind of what's the average time frame of the trades you're making, and yeah, you know, just generally like how's the fund structured?
1: Yeah. So uh, when we started this, it's basically like a long and only fund. So we're really trying to get exposure for people that um you know might have a bunch of like trade fi uh, investments and so on, and like they're they're looking to get a little bit of diversification for to crypto, but also like high upside. So um, we're trying to outperform the market, we're basically trying to outperform Bitcoin, like that's kind of our baseline. Um, so yeah, we we base out of that, and then uh, you know, before like we were following like four year cycle, um, and so on. But I mean, I and I'll be honest, like I, I thought like price would get a little bit higher, and I think part of those reasons is probably due to, to uh, I think it was the China ban in the middle of last summer, I think it maybe might have gone gone parabolic there, but, um, that meted along with the Elon FUD. And then this time around, like back in the last December, I think it was, uh, the fed essentially turning hawkish and, you know, high inflation prints like that kind of helped help me us a little bit, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because, you know, this, this whole time is essentially like a big base. Um, you know, there's a saying out there, it says bigger, the base higher, higher the space. So. Um, but yeah, I'll talk a little bit about my system and what we what we use. Yeah, that's that's the
0: next thing I kind of had written down to talk about. So if you want to go ahead and dive into that, just talk yeah. However, yeah, however
1: in depth you want to go. Yeah, one thing, one more thing I'll say about the fun. Um is yeah, so we try to use alts, like alts that are good, like a way to to be able to find um, you know, uh so, some some basically some additional alpha. So, you know, we were in pretty heavy Ethereum based kind of based on Ethereum almost last for 2021. And now we're a lot heavier Bitcoin. But um, I mean, you you do you do can find or you can find a lot of basically additional BTC by looking at that. So um, we also do margin trading and options trading as well. So I just wanted to mention that before I. Hey, and,
0: I guess one other thing as well, before you get into actual trading system, um, while yeah. we're kind of talking about the fund in general, like what is it like? managing your own capital versus um you know yeah. other people's capital and what's like kind of the, the psychology that
1: that you know you have to kind of face there. yeah so i i've kind of made like almost two or three transitions in in regards to the psychology with that because so the first one i was just you know trading on the side like it wasn't too big of a deal because I, if i messed up with something or had a bad trade like it was no big deal because i saw my income from uh basically you know my, my job my regular job um so that was way less pressure. And then I kind of transitioned to quitting that and I was more reliant on my trading income. So that was a different psychological way to look at it. And then moving on to the fund, it's even completely different because you're basically taking that additional emotional load from almost like the investors because you want to do right by them, obviously. So um, and luckily, like I said, I, I have a pretty chill personality. I'm able to take that without getting too high or too low. And um, luckily, like it suits me very well for my job and, and being a trader and, you know, managing risk and all this stuff. But um, honestly, like it, it is a big transition. It is a different transition. And one of our, we actually, so we're pretty small fund, but we have two, me, me and my other guy that's a partner. And then we have uh, basically like two employees, so one trader, and then one, one guy, guy that does research for us. And, you know, I was, Actually, our trader just started pretty recently. He was kind of with us part time, but now he's, he just started full time this Monday. But I told him, I said, you know, it's it's a little bit different, you know, trading for fun. So, like, if you ever, you know, need any uh, help or, or to deal with the emotions of it, you know, I can I can help because I've been through it. So, yeah, totally. And
0: then if you know, now again, if, if you want to like kind of dive into your, your trading system, because I think you have a good, you know, kind of. Um, yeah. broader broader look at several different aspects of analysis that the audience would definitely
1: find. yeah so so one of the things like we kind of try to take a look at um is you know I, I so momentum is one um value which is basically like how far is the rubber band stretch you know away from like it's moving some of the moving averages that we look at uh the other one that's been really important in the last year or so is derivatives um and so those are like these are i check all these things twice twice a week Um, So Mondays, normally we have a trading meeting and then me and my, uh, the other two employees will go through all these charts and I'll I'll kind of run through them with them. And then basically what we try to do is make sure that uh, our positioning is lined up with what the market's showing. Like basically taking a look at this objectively and saying, okay, um, you know, all this is saying it's very bearish, but we're, you know, max long and a margin long, like we should probably get out of that. So some of the things I look at. Um, so I, I really like uh, Heiken Ashi candles, like with the MACD. So basically, what what that strategy is, is just like all the candles. Um, you know, if they're green and you get a, a MACD cross up, like that's that's going to be a bull. Um, I also look at Stoch RSI, uh, and so I've, I've used that for a long time, and that's kind of a little. It's kind of tricky, honestly, but um, I've just used it for so long that I, I'm used to what. You know what signals it gives, and then the other thing I look at for momentum is SCMR. Um, it's basically like a series of moving averages. It's just like kind of like a paid indicator type thing. Um, so I basically look at all those on the one day, three day, and then like two week time frame. Um, you know, obviously one day is going to be more responsive than the two week, but like two week will show you are you are we in a serious uptrend? Are we in a serious downtrend? You know, because if the two weeks the in a downtrend and the one day you know turns bull, well you, you still Um, are kind of fighting the trend a little bit. So just something to keep in mind. And then, uh, so in terms of value, um, I look at one day RSI, three day RSI, mayor multiple, um, which is basically just price divided by the 200 day moving average. I I, I look at um, basically the price divided by the 20 week moving average, the price divided by the 50 week moving average, and then uh, also the price divided by the 50 day moving average also check out GBTC premium, um, is that turning up, down, what's going on with that? And then also like any bull or bear devs on mid timeframe. And so what this value does is it allows me to uh, kind of check out and see, you know, how far is rubber band stretch? So say that the 200-day moving average is at, I think it's at around 50K right now. Well, if we're at 30K, that means it's, um, it's at 0.6. So what I've done is I went basically gone back and I've run it, I've run back testing with distributions to see throughout the price of Bitcoin, you know, how often does that 0.6 happen, you know, and and it might happen 1% of the time. So if what that's telling me is, so even if momentum is bearish, but value is, is super far, you know, in, in the wrong direction. What, what that can tell you is it's a really good time to buy, even though momentum is bearish. Um, so I kind of look at all this stuff together and you kind of see if here on the screen, like recently, um it was at 0.85, you know, that still only happens 23% of the time. Um, and, you know, the distance from the 20-week moving average was 0.78, like that only happened 13% of the time. So, you know, and the other day when we were at around 35K, these were pretty low, Um and I also have some stuff like for the RSI's as well um, that aren't in, in there, but I think you understand kind of the gist. I uh, think from, a, from an on-chain perspective. Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on that in a minute um, and then I'll go through the derivatives and I'll kind of move on to that stuff. So derivatives, I uh, basically look at funding, uh, futures basis, which is like, you know, futures curve, they annualize Um That's what got super crazy back in, Early 2021, where it was paying 45%, I think. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, the cash and carry trade was 45% by basically doing nothing. And now it's down to like 2.25. So it's to me like that's pretty bullish because like the froth is completely gone. Um, We look at premium liquidations, open interest, open interest divided by uh, market cap, uh, long short ratio, liquidity. So that's kind of like some kingfishers. I've, we have a, I have a proprietary, um, liquidity thing that we use to kind of see where, you know, some 10 X and three X liquidations are. And I could probably show you that a little bit. I'm also looking at like heat maps. And then I also look at like Phoenix, uh, margin because that's where like the smart whales are in my opinion, um, the OGs. So, um, and I could probably show you this on the chart a little bit later, but just going through and looking at that and you, you know, plotted against Bitcoin. I mean, really like the long shorts will move, move with it pretty well. Um, so moving to August, like my, so those are bi-weekly checks. And then my bi- bi-monthly checks, uh, we check uh, top signal metrics. So this is a lot of different stuff. This has some on-chain stuff in there, like ASOPR, uh, MVRV, um, Pi Cycle Top, you know, Pel- Pell multiple, all of this stuff. Um, you know, this is all basically free or with, with you know, the glass node. Uh, we have a like tier two, but um, so I like to look at all that stuff and like this is something we'll just do to make sure we're not close to the very, very top. Um, so right now it's all kind of saying like there's value or it's it's bull. Uh, I also look at Mac, macro credit quite a bit and that's one of our biggest things we look at now because it impacts everything. Um, but so I look at with that, like, is, you know, is the Fed dovish or hawkish? Uh, you know, what is the quarterly GDP estimate coming up? And you know, what is PMI, uh, FCI? Like, those are both like economic health indicators, not non-farm payroll, debt GDP, uh, inflation, you know, so on. So a lot of these metrics, um, and I'll probably go through those in a little bit too and show you kind of what I'm looking at or what my basis is. But then we have... Um, so, sentiment, which is to look at fear, greed, podcast downloads, Google Trends, um, ex- Exchange Followers Daily, which, and then Crypto Reddit, Subreddit, you know, those things just kind of show you like how frothy is it. Um, those are both on SKU. And then I actually, you know, it's kind of interesting. I look at some seasonality things, which is, um, so I'd, I had a buddy, I'm not sure, do you know DJ Thistle? No. 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 He he's kind of an OG. Uh, he's not around too much anymore. But like, so I, I actually kind of learned uh seasonality stuff from him. Basically, like equinox and solstice are normally pivots. Like if you actually go back and plot those versus the chart, like they oftentimes will become a pivot in the chart. Why? I don't really know. It just, you know, it's one of those things. Um, so I look at that, you know, uh what, what's going on? Like, is it a positive month? You know, are taxes coming up? Because people have to sell for those, like. Just stuff like that um, and then yeah to answer your question like i do look at metrics um, with daily demand metrics and then daily supply so one of the things like i kind of missed back in uh, i guess it was december or november is that you know all the supply metrics looked great but the there was really not a lot of demand you know and i think part of that squeeze up was was derivative led so there was a lot of people buying on leverage. And then there just wasn't a lot of sellers at the time, but you had people that were trying to sell in the 60 K's surprise so ran right into supply. And then, uh, obviously just couldn't sustain. And so it's all sold off. So some of the, the metrics I look for demand are uh, active addresses, um, you know, addresses with non-zero balance minor revenue, which is essentially like the mean pool. Um, you know, and then 1K 1K or above, and then 1BTC, like, are those turning up or down? Um, short-term holders, which, you know, kind of show, like, if there's a lot more short-term holders, that means that demand has been coming in, and, you know, they're buying up the coins from the people that are, that have been holding for a long time from the long-term holders. Um, a couple other things, but, yeah, and then on the supply side, like, the liquid supply shock ratio, uh, long-term holders, net position change, coin days destroyed, dormancy flow, um, one one month realized cap pull waves, uh, supply delta. So those are kind of some things like I overall just check, like just to make sure we're on top of it. Um, I still do a lot of like trading by feel. So in terms of... Um, like our trading allocations, like I will use 25% using the three-day and actually strat. Um, 50% is basically discretionary trading levels. And I kind of have like an allocation mate, uh, matrix for that, which it says like, say we're above, you know, 40, 41, or, you know, then we're going to be so much in Bitcoin. And um, if you drop below that, like we're going to turn into so much cash and so on. And they also have proprietary, uh, system that uses uh, a scoring system for contrarian and then a uh, proprietary system that uses uh, momentum-based stuff. And I kind of have scores for that and that's like a smaller percentage. Um, but yeah, as you can see, like 50% of our uh, trading is, you know, like kind of discretionary, just like feel almost. Um, cause, cause like, for example, recently, you know, we broke 40 K and we, we went, we went, went into some cash or basically hedged on that, that break a while back. Cause I thought that, you know, there was going to be, there's quite a bit of stops under there, but you know, we held 33 there. And so we bought all that back background, 33, 34. Um, and then, so we went up to 46 or yeah. And then we went back down again recently with the, with the dip, but I kind of thought like this time there wasn't, there wouldn't be as many sellers because, Uh, There wasn't as much leverage that needed to be taken out. And then, um, you know, also like all those high beta traders from Wall Street and so on uh, that treat BTC that way. I think, you know, I I just didn't think it would fall as much and I was right. You know, we went down to 30, I think 36 or 34 and and that was with the the day of the invasion. So, and then the last thing we do is like, we kind of have a high beta play. So I use a momentum strategy for, Alts, the bigger alts like Ethereum, um, you know, like Luna, Avax, Sol, like some of those. Um, And basically when the momentum is positive, we might be heavier in those to try to get a a some more Bitcoin out of it when when the alts are doing well, which right now I'm not really like super high on alts, but um, then we have a couple of speculative alt plays. So what do you think about... First of all, that was was super insightful.
0: Um, What do you think about the potential of kind of a Bitcoin-led rally here, at least kind of a
1: liquidity flow back to Bitcoin in the kind of short to intermediate term? Yeah, I'm a pretty big proponent of that, actually. Like, So I think there's a couple of reasons why alts did well um, last year. So obviously, like Bitcoin has kind of been sideways for a year or so. Um, And then like basically all the alts almost did, did pretty good last year in 2021. Including, including Ethereum, but um, I tend to think that Bitcoin. People kind of forget about it, you know. It's kind of like a sleeping giant. I, I call it the king, um, but you know, it's like don't don't sleep on the king because <laughs> they'll creep up on you. But basically, yeah, I, I think. Late 2020, uh, a lot of people were pretty heavy in alls. And then you saw Bitcoin just completely suck the air out of the room when it was going up. And people dumped their all positions at a loss to chase Bitcoin. They're basically trying to chase whatever's going up, you know. And, and also, so you had a lot of outside capital going coming into It kind of created this, this vacuum, of, in a sense, towards Bitcoin. But what happens is, when that's going up, basically, you need Bitcoin to go up to draw more liquidity in from the outside, you know, get more people interested. And when that happens, money flows down to other alts. Um, and, and Ethereum, I think it kind of liquidity flows downhill. And you definitely saw that, like you saw Ethereum pump, and then you started seeing like the, more of the shit coins pump, like the Doge pump, and, and some of those things, Shiba, you know, and I don't know. And so I, I think there was a couple of things that went into that last year. One was all the fiscal stimulus, so basically the Fed was, you know, very accommodative with money policy. And so you had people giving stimulus checks. Um, they didn't have to pay their rent in some instances, you know, like they're getting child tax credits. So they just had overall more discretionary spending. Um, and think about it this way. If you get a check in the mail for $1,000 and you, you'd actually don't need that money, well, you basically look at it as free money, right? Which it is um, in a sense, but... I think you saw people like they're hey I, I got a thousand dollar check I'm just going to gamble this this check you know and and bet on Doge or whatever like and I think that's the reason you why know, you saw a lot of that you're also seeing a lot of options uh, take up in the last couple of years and I think that's kind of a similar thing and that kind of goes all the way back to too like this tends to happen over history when money is failing um, and so I think like yeah money is failing and and that's that's a reason why you're getting a lot of the speculation and stuff so. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I kind of want to
0: pivot a little bit from you, know, you kind of gave what kind of constructs your view of the market. And with that in mind, what is your current view on current market conditions?
1: Um, yeah, let me pull up some charts, I guess, here. BLX. Um, so overall generally if you go out to like the weekly um, so you kind of see these patterns that that occur over time and yeah let me pull up a chart uh, the monthly chart so I made this a while ago on on uh, or posted on Twitter but basically what it's showing is is like you see these patterns that develop over time and this is actually the longest like sideways uh consolidation pattern that we've that we've seen and this i posted this a while back so i mean this is probably two months ago so it's it's even you know we've been consolidating for really like probably almost a year and a third now at this point um but generally when this happens like this normally breaks up so I, I think you could get a, a fake down uh below maybe 29, but that's definitely not my base case. Um I do have a little like cash, especially on my personal side, um, available in case that happens. But yeah, I really think that like this is just a base for hire. And, and you know, looking at all the geopolitical uh macro and, and all those factors, like I think we're starting to get some some more tailwinds. Um but so yeah, like you, you kind of zoom in here. I mean, this is this is just a giant consolidation pattern, in, in my opinion, and uh, one that will eventually break up. Um, that's kind of my base case still at the moment. So,
0: what do you think as well about the kind of current, you know, macro backdrop that we have? Obviously, a lot different than kind of late 2020, yeah. you know, early 2021. And how do you think that kind of ties into Bitcoin? Um, and I guess kind of a side question off of that. Uh, This has been something that's kind of like widely disputed on Twitter. Uh, How much of the kind of macro uncertainty do you think is priced in? Some people say it's fully priced in. Some people say that it's not even yet priced in. So what do you kind of think about that as well?
1: Yeah, I'll answer that question first. Then I'll kind of go a little more like my macro thesis. Um, So I actually think personally, a lot of the rate hikes are, are, are priced in. I mean, and I think like Bitcoin kind of almost functions as a, as a, the last fire alarm. Um, as we talked about a little bit about earlier, I think it was almost the day of the high inflation frame where it was 6.8 back in early November, November 8th, maybe. Uh here, that like basically what happened is inflation spiked. Uh, people started speculating that the Fed was gonna address that because they have two mandates. So they have an employment mandate and then they have an inflation mandate. Um, and then they have a, in my opinion, they have a pseudo another mandate. That's basically like market stability, uh, making sure the markets are functioning properly and we can get in a little bit later, but basically that high inflation print. Um, and then, so we sold off pretty heavily, obviously since then uh, starting to look a lot better now, but I think, Majority of those rate hikes are actually priced in. You kind of see that on the two-year chart, so the two-year bond chart. Um, so pull this up. Like, I mean, this this is just chart is insane. It's basically up, you know, 1,500% in a matter of months. And basically, what this is telling you is is that like the the Fed essentially jawbones themselves or talked them, you know, the market into saying like, okay, here's what we're gonna do they were trying to get the, the market to do the work for them. So they were, so rates already pricing what they, what they talked about uh, on like the shorter end of the curve. So because of that, I think like you've already had a lot of the damage unwind. And so if, if you're looking at in terms of stocks, so basically like everything is, is tied to the risk-free rate, which is the bond market. And so everything is kind of set off of that real estate, uh prices stock prices to an extent um so basically what what happens is you have a something called a discounted cash flow analysis which which takes your risk-free rate um and then you have that tied to an earnings price ratio or you, you know and then from there uh you can assess like what the ep ratio should be you know similar to price early it's just flipped on its head but um that what that will do is that will allow you to figure out what stocks are evaluated at. Um, And so last year, I think it was hearing from uh, Fidelity was saying that the 10-year rate was 100 basis points below where it should have been. And because of that price-to-earning ratio was six points above where it should have been uh, because of that discount cash flow analysis and from there it basically because of the liquidity the fed was providing it was basically a fed induced bubble of, to the tune of 25 percent for equities and that has since calmed down a little bit and you would say well yeah we haven't dipped 25 percent well that's right but also earnings were up quite a bit last year so really like we're right in the kind of the fair value range for equities now in my opinion um so i think actually a lot of that really is priced in uh at this point and then you know, obviously we had the geopolitical stuff pop up recently too, which, which kind of led to the sell-off, um, for Bitcoin, but, uh, do you want me to touch on the macro now or? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So back when I started trading, I, I, you didn't really need to follow this stuff much at all. Um, but now it's, it's a lot more important, obviously. So let me go through, um. So a couple of things I look at. So like GDP. Um, so right now, uh, one of the problems is is like the economic growth still really isn't isn't even that high. I think the Atlanta Fed estimate came in at like basically zero. Um, and so like looking at that, we kind of have um, a problem because the the federal debt GDP ratio is now 122 or 123%. Um, and that was after I think nominal GDP growth of 10% last year and also set 7% inflation. And they were still only get, be able to get the debt GDP ratio down from 135 to 122. And then realistically, it's like to normalize policy. This need, needs to get back to 70, 80 I'm sure you've heard like Luke Roman talk about this before, but, uh, You know, so I'm a pretty big believer that, you know, we've kind of hit the event horizon in terms of debt versus GDP. Um, You know, Hirschman Capital did a report that basically said when this happens, 49, I think it was 49 out of 50 or 50 out of 51 uh, nations basically defaulted implicitly or explicitly. So an explicit fall would basically say like, oh, bondholders, sorry, we're not going to get your return back. And then an implicit default would basically be where they have inflation or hyperinflation and everyone gets paid back uh, nominally, but not in real terms. They lose a ton in real terms. So I look at that. And then, um, so also, well, this is, this is like the uh, yield curve 10 minus two. Um, So People keep talking about you know the fed's gonna hike the fed's gonna hike and they just you know they say it over and over and I think a lot of trade five what a lot of like trade five people miss is is like the fiscal problem the United States is is under um and I'll kind of go into that a little bit let me see if we can find these charts uh, let's see let's PMI let me get rid of these stuff okay um, so we have your uh financial index you have the oh yeah so this is where i want to get to this chart basically shows the the real yield um you can see like it's at negative 5.7 now which this is basically financial repression meaning if you hold cash or bonds you're you're getting completely like basically money stolen from you essentially um And it hasn't been this low since like the 70s. And if if you remember in the 70s, well, I wasn't around, but uh, gold did extremely well in that decade, Um, hard asset. And so also this chart doesn't show, but it was pretty bad in the 40s after the war as well. And so I'm kind of using the 40s as an analog for what needs to happen now. Basically, the government needs to have cap yields and then they need to have inflation to be able to lower your debt GDP ratio so you can normalize policy. Otherwise you run the risk of, of having an, uh, a debt spiral or basically like you can't have enough growth to outrun your debt. And then you basically need to have your uh, the Fed or the central bank uh, monetize everything. So basically like, they're the only ones that are buying like the, the government's debt and the bonds. Um, and that's kind of like the, in, the end game there. So that's, that's the problem when, when that happens. And also, let's see. So one of the things I, I look at too, um, right now our our federal uh, surplus of de- de- deficit as a percent of GDP is basically as low as it was, almost as low as it was in the 40s. This basically means is like uh, you you're not you're not getting enough economic activity to uh for for the debt that's that you're you're basically trying to use debt to increase economic activity but it's not working super well um one of the other things that i look at is see if we can get pop up here sorry um all right this one is what's your m2 but then i have uh yeah this is what's showing your total public debt divided by your uh foreign holders. So, so what before you can see right here on the chart that this gap is getting larger and larger over time. So basically what that's saying is you're domestically or internationally, you're not having enough people that are interested in buying United States government debt. So what, so what's having to happen is the Fed is basically increasing their balance sheet, um, to pick up the slack and And this is basically that chart that I just showed, but uh, it's having the foreign buyers divided by the total debt issued. And when this is turning down, you can see in 2014, this is when like Russia and China stopped buying treasuries. And this has been going downtrend now for a while. And what this is showing is that the fed's going to have to keep continuing to buy in all the government's, government's debt. Um, So why is that a problem? Well, people say, you know, they can raise rates, there's there's not going to be an issue with raising rates. And, uh, you know, just take some of the steam out of the economy, who cares if the stock market goes down 20% or 30%. Well, the problem is almost all of our GDP is tied to uh, the wealth effect. And and so what that means is uh, personal consumption. So basic consumerism is 70% of our of our GDP and we basically buy everything else that the world makes. A lot of it comes from China. Um, you know, we buy some of Russia's oil and so on, but that's basically saying if you have a drop in stocks and you already kind of see this in the chart where it's starting to roll over a little bit, but um, you're not gonna be able to have this sustained GDP growth that you need if, if stocks are down. Um, and this also kind of shows like your, your tax receipts over GDP and um, know if this starts rolling over that that's not good because you're not going to have as much have as much uh tax receipts because tax receipts is tied to the wealth effect and if you have less tax receipts you're basically not able you need to print more or print more uh t-bills and issue more debt to be able to finance the government spending and you also have i think it's 100 the boomers have 100 trillion of unfunded liabilities coming in soon so Basically, I'm of the thought process that the Fed is going to hike maybe one or two times uh, to try to keep some credibility, but realistically, like, the work has been done that they needed to do, and I think they're going to keep rates pretty low. I don't think they can raise them, really. I mean, basically, their debt's too high to where if they they raise them, like, it's just stuff's going to start breaking, so... So
0: I guess kind of as like a counterpoint to this was, you know, I kind of stand in the camp of what you're saying, but my buddy, yeah. Pintoshi, I'm sure you've probably seen Pintoshi yeah. on Twitter. His thesis is kind of that the Fed is willing to trigger a recession and that, you know, they'll, they basically have, you know, they have to choose between two of bad op two of you know, one of two bad options, yeah. excuse me. One of them obviously being like inflation running hot and the other, you know, equities, you know, and just assets in general, you know, going yeah. into some type of, you know, prolonged recession. So his kind of thesis is that the Fed is willing to take on a, some type of recession, similar to like Volcker, um, because, you know, at, at least if they if they choose that option of the two, they're still able to kind of maintain control of the system. Um, I'm curious, like what it what, what would be kind of your response to someone who had a thesis of, of that um,
1: regard? So, you know, I don't think that thesis is like crazy or anything, um, because I think the people that have that thesis a lot of them look at what the Fed's mandates actually are which are inflation and unemployment. And unemployment's doing very well right now and then the very low rates and then but inflation's obviously high so people just say oh well that's one of their two mandates so that's what the Fed is going to focus on and that's unacceptable to have an inflation rate. But My response back to that would basically be the Fed needs inflation the US government needs inflation and they need the rates low to inflate the debt away otherwise it's not going to matter because you're basically going to have like i said a debt spiral and then uh you're not gonna be able, you know you're not gonna be able to finance this stuff so and also if you have if you create a recession then it goes back to like the tax receipts and then how much uh, the wealth effect and like the G- gdp going down if you're i mean you're i already showed you the chart of you know the Atlanta fed and how that was uh you know estimated zero i mean if you're having zero gdp growth like and your debt, even if your coupon on your debt is going up 1% or 2% of what what it is now, um, you know, that's just unsustainable because you're basically having uh, that GDP grow without without doing anything. So I don't know, I I get the argument. I think people, but they just don't realize how bad the fiscal situation is. And that's kind of, I guess, my response to that and why I think the way I do.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Um, So like to kind of pivot off of macro, what yeah. do you think about Bitcoin uh, long term given kind of the macro backdrop and where that's kind of pointing in the next you know five, 10 years and kind a of longer term, um, given that a lot of these things that you just had pointed to are kind of uh, not sustainable. And why do you think Bitcoin, well, this is something we talked about privately um, yesterday. Yeah. Why do you think Bitcoin will kind of remain to be the main store value, not only in the crypto space, but as well, why is Bitcoin kind of the superior store value compared to other assets, you know, just in, in broader markets as well?
1: Yeah. So let me let me bring a, a couple uh, charts here. One moment. Um, so this one is, let's see, this one and then one more here. Okay. So I'll try to address the, I guess, like s- store value where I think it's going. Um, so I told you at the beginning. I kind of had this thesis of, you know, what is what is Bitcoin's total addressable market? You know, when I started investing, in, and what, what could happen? Well, obviously, a lot of things can happen. Um, you know, it could go to zero. There could be a hack. The government could attack it. Or whatever. Like, you know, those those are all pretty valid concerns. Uh, 2013. I don't think they're nearly as high as the probability um now i think you have some governments that will attack it but you know game theory kind of says that some countries like El Salvador and and others will embrace it um and so that you'll have a brain drain there and also a capital drain to those countries if you know if they don't treat it well um so i I was kind of like thinking back a while ago and i think crocious btc put this out but um you know it's looking at all of the potential um ways that bitcoin can you know, take money away from basically. So you have the gold market, you have cars, other collectibles, fine art, real estate, stock market, um, bonds, including negative and low yielding bonds. So basically what that's saying is, you know, you take 40% of gold's market cap, you take 10% of collectibles, 20% of fine art, 20% of real estate, um, 20% of stock market, uh, 90% of negative yielding bonds, and 50% of low yielding. yielding bonds. Well, that gives you 206 trillion, you know, potentially Bitcoin's market cap there. Um, You know, and this is not right away. This is something that's over a period of 10, 20 years. Right. Um, But I think honestly, right now, the biggest driver is going to be bonds. Um, I think people that are looking at people as digital gold are are thinking too small uh, because think about it this way. It's only going to get worse. So inflation is, I think, going to continue off and on high for the next this decade because they need to get the debt GDP ratio down. Um, So assuming that yields are going to be capped and inflation is going to be high, well, people are going to be, bondholders are probably going to lose 50% at least of their value um, if they just stay in bonds. And I think people are going to start to figure it out, especially if you get some like negative 10% real rate in terms of bonds. So I think a lot of that capital will flow into another different store of asset, and if if you see Bitcoin rising, all while your bonds are falling, you know it's like it's kind of almost like a, a human human nature to, to chase something that that, that is rising. So um, this is kind of my view of my long term. Uh, you seen from arc also put out a a pretty good one. Um, so this is this is a little bit different different, but you know it basically says like remittances. Uh, the M2 uh, settlement mo- networks so basically like the reserve asset, um, nation state treasuries, uh, Caesar resistant asset, um, which is super big now, um, institutional asset and corporate treasury, and then digital gold. Like he he comes to it in price of 136 or 1.36 million for BTC. I think the other one I looked at, that was roughly like 10 million for BTC, but, So I don't know. I I really am pretty bullish. I think this thing is going to take over the world. Um, You know, I I, and that's kind of the hard thing is like when I'm so bullish long term, but I have to like try to make more Bitcoin, try to trade Bitcoin and do all these things. Like that's one of the things that I struggle with a little bit because I always definitely have the long term in mind. But, you know, I have to separate that from from my trading. So. And then let me talk Just, about, I, I personally oh, agree God. with
0: that as well. That's something that, you know, I think it's, if I had to like, you know, be self-critical of myself, it's definitely that, like, it's tough to kind of zoom in and out and, you know, maintain that really long-term bullish thesis and then still maintain yeah. complete objectivity in the kind of the short to intermediate term for sure.
1: Yeah, it, it is. Um, and that's, that's one of the things like, you always have to have a little bit of bullish bullish bias, but also like know where you are in the cycle too. Like, I mean, and that's where it kind of comes down to the value. If you're, you know, two point four times your two hundred day moving average, well, that's that's pretty good value to sell. I mean, you know, everything kind of has an adoption curve. I mean, so basically, I look at you know with the hard cap supply, and you have that total total addressable market that you can pick from. But you kind of have that, but you also have the demand aspect. So that's kind of like little bit of the supply you know like people are going to hold on to that uh their bitcoin but then you have the demand aspect which is essentially like the Metcalf's law and then the all the adoption curves s curves and so on and so like that's kind of two different ways to look at it but you kind of end up on the same conclusion let me share a couple of charts in regards to that um so tim peterson uh he basically has done some, some some valuations uh Basically, based on upon Metcalf's law, and uh, he has his like lowest price forward, um, you know, based on based on those those metrics that in this adoption curve that, that he's put together, and his long term targets are, let's see, basically end the year in two thousand thirty three, so roughly eleven years, twelve years. Uh, his target was eight million per Bitcoin, and so. That is this, and this is a demand-driven model, it has nothing to really do with supply. So that's this is a completely different way to, to end up with you know looking for a valuation metric. And then you have recently um Urian from Fidelity. So he put this out recently, whereas Bitcoin demand models, this is based on S curve. So he took essentially the number of address accounts. Um, and then like the growth model for mobile phones and then growth model for internet users. And what this is showing is that like you, by the time you get like at 2033 on the high end, he has roughly like four or 5 million per Bitcoin. And on the low end, uh, 2035, it's like a million, you know? So to me, like this is a completely new asset class. It's important. it's, it makes sense, uh, demographically to millennials and zoomers. Um, I mean, you're, I mean, you're what, 20 years old. I think, you know, I, I I think you probably, when did you get a cell phone? Like 10? (laughs) You're on mute, man. My bad. Yeah. I was, You're I good. was in,
0: uh, I was in fifth grade. So yeah, I think I was I, think I was of 10. Yeah. See,
1: see, I didn't, I didn't get a cell phone. I'm uh, I didn't um, get a cell phone until I turned 18. Like basically I was leaving for college. So you guys grew up with phones, you know, your generation, like I'm a millennial, like it's a little bit different, but think about like boomers don't understand this stuff. I mean, some get it obviously, but like as a whole, like it doesn't make sense They they live in an analog world. We live in a digital world. You know, you probably spend most of your time online. Like a lot of people are like that. Um just with like social networks and and also like internet and everything. So Bitcoin just makes sense from a from that perspective, like a demographics perspective, to where you're gonna get this this growth? And I don't know, I, it's hard for me barring, like honestly, the only thing I could see it stopping it at this point is just like a catastrophic bug in the code. So um, because even with nation states, like say, say the United States, like, Ban it, which I don't think is high on the list, but say that they're banning it. Well, I talked about that game theory. I mean, people in the United States are just going to leave with their Bitcoin and go to El Salvador, go to somewhere that embraces it, you know, and um, so that's kind of like, I guess, my base case is that that's not really even that big of a concern at this point. So
0: no, that makes a lot of sense. Um. So two more topics before we wrap up. Uh, the first one is... What sorry, is your... can I... Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah sorry. You're... I thought you were finished. No, right. you're good, man. I, I was
1: just going to try to hit on the uh, the topic of the... Like, why I think Bitcoin wins in terms of, like, decentralization or... Yeah, for sure. Other Go for it. Can, I, can I touch on that? Sorry to interrupt.
0: No, totally. Go for it.
1: Um, So you see what's happening across the world now, basically, right, where you have governments in Canada, um, you know, basically trying to lock people's bank accounts because they're donating to a protest that the government disagrees with right and then you also have now where you have um you know russia's central bank had had their assets their fx reserves frozen because you know well this is a little bit more understandable because they you know invaded ukraine but still what, what that's saying this this affects Uh, Tons of Russian citizens that don't even agree with the war, too, you know, Um, and so long term, you need something that is completely decentralized, something that can't be taken somewhere you can mute, you know, move borders without, um, you know, being frictionless, you know, they're not going to take your can't take your keys away if you have it memorized in your head. Um, they can take your gold bars away if you try to get through an airport, you know, to go, flee. Um, or your cash, or your can't take your real estate with you. Can't take your stocks. Can't take your bonds, you know, if you're if you're fleeing. Uh, but you can take Bitcoin. Um, so that's why I'm like a huge proponent of centralization. And ultimately, like I really like some of the things the other networks are doing, like Ethereum, Solana, like some of those things, you know. But um, I think the most important thing of this decade is still going to be We need to fix the money and we need decentralization because you're seeing, you know, governments like Australia, governments like all over the world, Canada that are being super heavy handed and and they're just trying to take, you know, people's money. I mean, your money is not safe in a bank. I mean, even with fractional reserve, you know, it's, it's what, they might have 2%, 5% reserves. On hand, So yeah, people trying to get money at the same time, like in Russia, that's just gone. You know, it's, it's, it's literally not your money. Um, so I think the centralization is super important, but you kind of have like this whole talk recently that's, that's, that's a hot topic with Ethereum versus Bitcoin. And, you know, like I said, I think the smart contracts and stuff like by talk did a lot of great things. Um, I think Ethereum is really cool. But why I prefer Bitcoin over Ethereum um, is mainly decentralization uh, and the proof of work. So recently Ethereum trying to kind of pivot to hard money to to basically uh, rival Bitcoin in that regards. But the problem is with the smart contracts and all their lending and borrowing, um, you need fees to be low for that, to be able to to have utility. So they're trying to really like ride two horses with one ass because they're going after the hard hard cap money and saying like, oh, well, our issuance rate is lower than Bitcoin's. But at the same time, you know, they change that. Like they, if it's not immutable, they, they change, they change the code or whatever to be able to have a lower issuance rate. And there's nothing that says that they can't do it on the other, other end either. And also, I mean, you know, Bitcoin, uh, to be able to make a change is you have to go through the nodes. Um, it's super easy to, to, to run a node with Bitcoin because it's really cheap. I think you can do it for a hundred bucks. Whereas like Ethereum, you almost need, I think it's like a thousand gigabytes. I'm not a hundred percent sure, probably more than that actually, but it's a lot harder to run a node. Um, so that makes it more centralized. You know, they're trying to move to proof of stake, which then you have the whole, you know, debate with validators basically being more uh you know like the concentration of wealth like how that's similar to our current uh status where basically like if jeff Be- bezos has um you know wants to influence politics well he has a ton of money and lobbying power to go to congress and say hey i, I don't want to pay taxes in this state like you know uh, help me out I'll, I'll, I'll scratch your back you, you scratch mine and, and that can happen with pos too that's one of the concerns i have so I do think that those those are good contracts, but um, are good, sorry, good uh, chains, but I, I kind of don't like the fact that they try to go after Bitcoin's like hard money aspect, because I don't think they will ever be that. I think they should just focus on, you know, trying me the best, most utility going forward and, and fix their, um, you know, their fees, because that's why Ethereum is losing some people to the other layer ones, so... Yeah, no, that makes a
0: lot of sense. And I definitely agree with you. What do you think about the correlation to TradFi and just like broader legacy assets, yeah. both kind of in the short term and then uh, in the longer term, as we move out, yeah. you know, call it five, 10 years or whatever from now.
1: So this kind of comes down to uh, the chart here I have up is, is basically uh, the VIX so the volatility index. Um, so you've probably heard some people throw like the terms around like long ball or short ball, And right now. So basically, if it was, if you're a long vol asset, uh, you would expect that to go up when the VIX spikes. So if you kind of see the chart here, whenever the VIX is spiking, Bitcoin has been going down, which essentially means that it is a short vol asset. But the problem is that I see is that over time, Bitcoin is going to, if you miss the top 10% top 10 days, you take out, you go from 147% compound annual growth rate to 91%. If you take out the top 20, you go down to 61%. If you take out the top 30, you go down to 39%. If you take out the top 40, it's 21%. And the, and the top 50 is 7%. So Bitcoin trades like a risk asset and, and moves with, with the asset in terms of when there's, when there's high VIX numbers, and also when they're sideways, but the problem is, just like we saw the other day, Bitcoin went up fifteen percent when, you know, when when the Nasdaq and the I think the SPX were down. You know, like if they were truly correlated, then you wouldn't have had that gain. And So that's the thing is, like if you're looking at it from that construct, then you're going to miss out on a lot of the gain. So I don't know. It it kind of is and it isn't. Um, and I think long time. Or, long term it's going to turn into more of a long ball so like gold but i just don't think it's it's going to be a transition um recently i think you also have a lot of like ever since wall street started coming in more um they basically treat it as a a short ball ball asset and so they do a lot of like they they treat it as a high beta meaning like high beta basically means like if you're looking at the spx um and spx goes up two percent well bitcoin is a high beta would go up say 5% Five percent on that day, um, so they end up. What they end up doing, I think, is and what's being done recently is that, like, when you have the VIX spiking and they expect stocks to go down, you have people on trading desks that might be shorting um, on the CME or something, you know. So that's that's helping to send Bitcoin down. But you know, all those people, they're essentially naked shorting. They're going to have to buy back eventually. So because of that, I think, you know, we we could potentially have a a short squeeze, uh, moving forward, but, you
0: know, that that makes a lot of sense. I think like people that are bidding on that correlation lasting forever, you know, at some point are going to kind of get out of the water as we saw with that massive move (laughs) the other day. Um, last topic kind of for the day is what are your thoughts on the having, uh, especially moving forward? Are you kind of in this camp that, you We're know, four-year cycle forever. Do you think we've already kind of broken out of that pattern? And I guess just what are your broader thoughts on, on the four-year cycles moving forward?
1: Um, so I, I you know, I I wrote a huge thread probably on Twitter. Um I think it was like right before the halving. And I basically said, like, this is definitely not priced in. Um, you know, the there's gonna be a supply shock because you know there's lower issuance, and that, that's you know. If we have the same demand, then price is going to go up. And then basically it's like this feedback loop where price goes up, people pile in, you know, and so on. It kind of, and so that's happened almost every cycle so far, but I do think um, that's starting to come to an end mainly because a couple of reasons. One, the issuance is lower. So there's 900 Bitcoin a day now. Uh, and then I think at two years roughly, that's going to go on 450, which is not too, not really that many, to be honest. And then the other aspect is, a lot of my, miners now are way better capitalized, so they can get fiat loans and say in USD, and then they basically can hold all the Bitcoin they might on their balance sheet. And that's what you're seeing with like Riot and Marathon and some of these other big miners um, that you didn't have that last time. So, and you also so because that dynamic. But then you also have all these other dynamics too, like, for example, uh, like all the derivative exchanges, like they have fees that they make, you know, which basically are a lot of times are just sold on the market, um, you know, and so it's almost like if you have in a chop zone and then they make all this money on fees and people getting traders getting blown up, well, that's going to need to be sold. You have the GDBTC fee, and that that's like some a uh, little bit of drag on on overall. Um, so you have some of these other mechanisms that are starting to weigh a little bit more into. So I generally think about, if I had to say that the four year cycle is done, I do think the halving will give Bitcoin a little boost in, in 2024, but you know, as time goes on, it's gonna matter the having is gonna matter, sorry, matter less and less. Yeah, no,
0: I, I completely agree with that, especially, you know, all the kind of dynamics you talked about. Um, and, you know, how the kind of primary salt pressures is evolving uh, over time yeah. and, and we will
1: continue to do so. Um, hey, would, you, would you mind me touching on one more thing?
0: Yeah, yeah, go for it, man. I was about to ask you if there's anything, uh, anything <laughs> you wanted to touch on before we, before we wrap yeah, up. Yeah,
1: I, I kind of wanted to, like, maybe end with, um, like, the incentives and why I think, like, Bitcoin mining is so important. And this is kind of important to me, like, as a former engineer. I think it's, like, it, it gets me excited excited about the future and stuff. Uh, and I talked to my dad a lot because he works at a utility and they were actually mining Bitcoin for a bit, but I kind of want to talk about Bitcoin's like incentives and what's going to drive uh, adoption in the future. So to me, you have four things. You have remittances, which is essentially what's going on with El Salvador and the Lightning Network. So, you know, Jack Mollars has been working on that. He has shown that um, you can send money. and You don't have to, rely on these rent-seeking companies like Western Union. So basically instead of paying a 30% fee, you can pay a a 0% fee. And and basically all that money is gonna be pushed into the economy that wouldn't be there before. It's not in the pockets of Western Union. Uh, So that's a big one. That's gonna be worldwide, especially in developing countries. Uh, Another one is going to be uh, the censorship resistance um, of money. So, that kind of ties into like the Canada stuff that we just talked about. So you want to have money out of the, the kind of like the purview of the government. Um, they're, they're not going to be able to, to take your money if you have your private keys. Um, you know, that's why it's all important to get your, you know, your Bitcoin and Ethereum or whatever off exchanges. Uh, the other one is going to be your hard cap. Um, so I think, you know, people that are at the, the gold bug thesis, um, you know, the immutable hard cap, um, that's important. And then, what was the last one? Uh, so, man, I can't think of the last one I was gonna say. Um, anyway, um, oh yeah, yeah. So I remember uh, mining. So that this is what this is probably one of my favorite things. Like, so you kind of have this big thing with ESG, right? Um, So ESG is this big push lately that's trying to say, be more environmentally conscious, social governance. Um, So how does that affect money? So a lot of people said proof of work is bad for the environment or, you know, because Bitcoin's using energy, it's not important. Well, two things I I have a bone to pick with that is one, value is subjective. So, you know, Christmas lights use more energy than Bitcoin. Um, I'm pretty sure dryers do um i mean everybody enjoys those things this is for a censorship sovereign you know individual sovereignty resistant money it is important you know so anybody that says that like that that would be my response back to them but even looking into the numbers i think the very important thing is that uh bitcoin mining will be integrated with every single utility and every single gas company going forward so what are the reasons for that uh so right now when you when you look at say a utility w- what is it so they have power plants um or they have windmills or, or solar or whatever like they're basically producing power and they so they're the seller of the power they need a customer so the customer is people that live in that residence or that uh jurisdiction um so what happens is say you have uh you know a nuclear power plant that, that has to run and then you know, say that the jurisdiction uses 100 megawatts of power per day, um, but then you have your you have all these these power plants that are making say 120. Well, the, these these power plants like nuclear can't shut off at night. So what's going to happen is you basically have to waste that power at night, and you don't have a user that that wants it. So what's going to happen is you're going to have uh, all these miners. At these power plants, they will bot be the buyers of last resort for that energy. So they will come in, they will buy that energy at, at nighttime when there's a you know a, a low need for inter, for power. And then also, it's interesting because you can green up the grid basically by having additional solar and wind, and overbuilding the grid basically. And then what hap- will what hap- what happen is you'll have your base load, but you'll also have all these wind and solar. And so if, if let's just say that you have the, all this overbuilt. So normally you can use these wind and solar when the wind is blowing, when the sun is shining, but eventually what will happen is, uh, you know, you won't need that at times. And then, but you'll but you don't want to waste that. You just don't want to have these extra power plants. You don't want to have these extra windmills that no one's gonna use. So you need to have a buyer for that power. So Bitcoin miners will be attached to that. And so you'll be able to overbuild eventually. And then you always have a buyer of last resort. Um, so that will allow us to get greener um, in ter- in terms of you know, the power load. And I think that's like a definitely something that people really aren't thinking about because um, people say Bitcoin needs to use less energy. I think it needs to use more en- energy in that regard.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And as well, just something you kind of alluded to, like, I think we need to kind of get off the defensive about kind of justifying uh, Bitcoin's energy usage and instead just kind of talking about why it does use energy. Like, you know, if if you explained the kind of, you know, uh, financial, you know, uh, freedom that that it's providing and banking people in areas Mm -hmm. that their currency is devaluing rapidly around the world, um, you know, I think, people don't understand, especially, you know, privileged folks in, in the United States don't right. really understand the purpose of what that energy is is providing for people. Um, and then as well, I think, you know, as you touched on, there's certain things like the Christmas lights one's always a good go-to about, <laughs> um, you know, the comparison of energy usage. I think like the reason that you know, it, it, it gets so much light shed on it. It's just the fact that Bitcoin is so transparent, right? And and compared to many right. things, like there's no ledger for you to, you know, look at how much uh, energy is being used at any time by by Christmas lights, but you came with Bitcoin. Um, and so due to that nature, I think, you know, people would be surprised if they did know that the, you know, energy output of, of many commonly used things, but because Bitcoin is so transparent, it gets so much light shed on it.
1: No, I mean... I, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, it, it's a very interesting debate. I, I think it's like, we're just so, so new with it because this is one of those things. Like when I started investing in Bitcoin, like I had no idea about mining, <laughs> you know, like I was like, oh, mining, like that's kind of interesting, but I, it, I didn't really see how it would, it would tie in with the energy sector. Um, you know, Marty Ben always says like, it's game over because, you know, Bitcoin's already won because it, it's won the energy market, you know, and I kind of agree with that. And I think um, a lot more people kind of start to figure that out, uh, along with the kind of like censorship resistance and, and so on. And I think that, you know, governments might might attack, uh, you know, some cryptos and um, especially some like the DeFi platforms, because that is like a direct uh, infringement upon like banks and, you know, like their rent sinking behavior. So, I, I mean, you saw with BlockFi, they have a $100 million fine recently. And I think that's because they don't like, you know, they don't like the fact that uh, you can go get 10% on your money using a stable coin, you know, when before in your bank account, you're getting like 0.1%, uh, you know, and there, there's a reason Jamie Dimon spends 65 days a year in, in a DC lobbying, you know, it's, <laughs> it's the keep um crypto stuff out like it's to keep keep this stuff out but the thing is like this is gonna happen regardless and you know we're gonna win overall so um I don't know I'm I'm excited about the future though. Yeah I, I love that and, and with
0: that I think that that's a really good uh way to kind of you know segue to wrapping it up here. Before we do um I want to kind of give you the Florida A um you know get any final thoughts that maybe you have um and then as as well kind of plug in anything if you did want to plug in yourself maybe your twitter fund or whatever you 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 want to plug in here um
1: yeah so yeah fun fun is just stats cap um so my twitter is yeah i'll pull it up and also it's it's at btc fiend so uh here um so at btc f-e-e-n and yeah so fun stats cap and then um I don't know. Yeah, just go follow me, and and then uh, if you want to follow my uh, my buddy Trey, let me see, get him up. He's uh, my partner, so he's uh, at at Trey Stewart 14. So yeah, I guess that, that's really all I had to say. I mean, I, I you know I, I think I'll kind of leave with yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think we're facing um, you know we're at the they fight you part now, and like Bitcoin has become big enough, and I think with in regards to like the geopolitics. I mean, we didn't t- touch on this a lot, but I think you're starting to see cracks in the dollar system. Uh, I think that's becoming evident, you know, Russia and China don't, don't really like the dollar system because um, it doesn't benefit them. I think you're gonna have like, you know, some stuff that's coming out of that that's really interesting. Uh, I won't go into too much detail, but basically, you know, essentially like, especially Europe is super reliant on Russia for energy and, you know, and, and they, uh, I don't know, they know that the West is very indebted. So it's going to be an interesting uh, month, and an interesting couple of years and, and really the decade, I think. So, um, but yeah, just, I would just tell people like, you know, just this thing about like what, what's going to matter, you know, in the, in the next decade and, you know, is, is, is like DeFi going to be more important or is like censorship resistant money? I mean, it's all important, but, you know kind of figure out like what what makes sense and, and look about look where governments might come after things and, and where you know you need to stay safe so
0: Steve thank you so much for coming on the show man we'll have to get you on maybe next quarter um you know I could talk to you for for three four <laughs> hours um but you really appreciate you you coming on and uh I'll talk soon man
1: yeah thank you, man I really appreciate it all right take it easy